everybody. Boy, do we have a treat for you. We have Major John Corrin coming on, who is another one uh, or another part of our Legends series and fantastic. He was a combat controller enlisted and then became a, a uh, combat control officer. Phenomenal talk. This is a part one. We've already agreed to get him on for part two. Uh, so make sure you tune in for that. But before that, make sure you check out attackleet.com. Use the promo code ones ready. They can get you everything that you need for equipment training for the pipeline, whether it's Rangers, SEALs, Marsoc Radiators, Air Force Special Warfare, whatever you need. You know, you can piecemeal stuff off of Amazon if you want, or you can go and get the no kidding stuff that you will be using in the pipeline at attackleet.com. So check those dudes out. Um, great group of guys over there. And we've, we have fostered a, a great relationship. So you know how we are. We want to help out our friends because they're helping us up. So in turn, they are helping you out with the ones ready promo code for a discount. And now on to JK. Enjoy because it's a doozy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the ones ready podcast. We're happy you joined us again. And we are back with part of our kind of legend series. Um, it's not going to end. We're just going to keep on bringing legends because really that's what Air Force Special Warfare produces. Uh, today, I have retired Major John Corn, go by JK. Uh, appreciate you joining us, sir. Sure. And uh, thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so we were kind of connected through Tommy Howard. Uh, he is is you know, the, the son or the prodigy of another legend who's no longer with us. But, um, you know, we've had, we've had Mike Lampy on, we've had Wayne Norad on, and now we have you as, as part of our kind of ongoing series. So if you don't mind, will you dive into a little bit of, of kind of where you came from and how you started out, uh, to enter special tactics? Okay. Yeah. Thank you. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, mentioning, um, Wayne and Mike, uh, they're good friends, and uh, they know all my sins, so I have to be careful. And yeah. <laughs> so we got to keep that closet closed and let, not let the bones fall out. Uh, Tommy is a is a neighbor uh, who we reconnected, and the fact that I worked uh, closely with Tommy's father, Clyde Howard, and uh, in Southeast Asia and in combat and. Uh, shared with him recently in November uh, some pictures he's never seen that I took uh, and talked about his father's role working with us and on the early Brand X days. So we can go into that. So, yeah, it's good yeah. to see Tommy. I might see him tonight. I'm going to the Armed Forces uh, 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 bowl game that Air Force and Baylor is at. We're going to freeze our butt off, but we're going to have fun. Yeah, it's going to be a little, little chilly. Uh, I, I want to say, and I please correct me uh, if I'm wrong. It's either yesterday or today is is the anniversary of Clyde's death. Correct? Yes, I think it was yesterday, and uh, uh, I think it was about eleven, eleven or twelve years ago, eleven years ago. And I saw Tommy oh. post that, and uh, yeah, it was sudden, as I understand it. And uh, it was also. Uh, our anniversary two days ago of our invasion of Panama as well. Yep. Uh, so that was uh, another operation I was on and was proud to be there with, with great, great people, great men. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to jump in, you know, too far ahead here, but like I, sure. we just, I just had, uh, I say, I, we just had Wayne Norad on 
for kind of round two. Um, and he was start, he started talking about, uh, Panama and stuff like that. So that was, that was great hearing, hearing all those kind of individual stories. So how did you, how did you find your way into special tactics or, or at the time, you know, there's some name changes along the way and stuff like that, but how did you, how did you find your way in? Well, uh, somewhat of a military family, but I'm just talking about my, my brothers. Uh, my dad was a mortician. Uh, he lived till he was 101. I grew up in uh, Pittsburgh area on the east side of Pittsburgh. Uh, didn't have a lot of money. Uh, and so there were six of us, five boys, one girl. And my uh, brother first went in and uh, uh, went into ROTC with John Carroll University. And during the summers, uh, he did go through ranger training. And so that impressed the heck out of me. And then my eldest brother, Mike, he was a uh, he was a, in the brown shoe days, if you will. He got drafted in 61 or 62, and he, he served his time to get out. And then my brother ahead of me, Joe, he, he went in uh, as well. I was getting drafted. So in 69, when I graduated from high school, uh, and this reflects the great uh, cognitive prowess of 18-year-olds, my buddy says, Hey, John, let's, let's go in the military. Oh, okay. He says, F the Army, your brother's in the Army. Let's go in the Air Force. I said, okay, that sounds great. So I went in the Air Force, you know, had no clue. So I ended up in basic training in uh, uh, June of 69. And uh, on the 10th day of basic training, here comes this guy walking in with his beret cocked mightily to the right, blue beret. Uh, it turned out to be Dave Thompson. He was a staff sergeant at the time. It turned out to be a great friend of mine. And uh, and uh, he says, hey, you want to go to parachute school? Want to go to jump school? You get a free pair of jump boots. I'm going, wow, that's great. And I was making 75 bucks a month. And if you jump out of airplanes, you get another 55. I said, I'll try it. Okay, well, we want you to do 80 deep knee bends in two minutes and then go run a mile and a half as fast as you can. Okay, I was young, skinny, limber. I did it. He said, okay, here's your orders. And I got their, uh, <laughs> got my extra jump boots, or my extra leg boots, actually. <laughs> they were leg boots. So two weeks after uh, uh, graduation from Lackland basic training, I was at Fort Benning. And there was five of us there, I think. Yeah, five of us, five Air Force. And we were uh, a bunch of A1Cs, or airmen, actually, and one-stripers. And uh, we had a buck sergeant pushing us. And all we did was details, you know, KP on, on, the, on the weekends because the Army treated us horribly. You know, what the hell are you doing, Air Force, here? You know, why don't, why don't you brush that? Air Force belt buckle, well, sir, we don't, you know, Air Force doesn't, it's a brushed metal look, oh, that's BS, you know. So, uh, but I did survive, I, I got, uh, I think it was about 500 guys in that jump school class, got all my drops, we jumped C-119s, and then Whoa. the graduation jump was a 141. We're going, wow, that's high cotton, you know. So got out of there and got orders for air travel control school, and went down to Keystone Air Force Base, got there three days after Hurricane Camille hit. And for the next three weeks, all we did was details, cleaning up Biloxi and Keystone Air Force Base. And then um, hooked up with Tom Roloffs. He got out, uh, but Charlie Rapp was there. And uh, Chief Rapp, 
and I, uh, lifelong friends. And uh, so we were three young cocky airmen with these Skeeter wings thinking we were badasses at <laughs> Air Force Base and went through, went through training. And uh, so that's the initial part. Uh, I got my orders. I went to Lockbourne Air Force Base, Ohio, now known as Rickenbacker. It's a big, big base, dual runway base, south and east of Columbus. And so it was only 200 miles from Pittsburgh. Oh, wow, I can go home all the time. Well, not really. But it was a it was really a wonderful assignment because Mitch Bryan uh, came in there. Uh, and we had about five or six young airmen that got there. And uh, Chief Jim Howell was our came in. It was our NCIC. And we were, of course, in the aerial port squadrons because the organization back then were terrible. And we were buried there. But uh, he, along with uh, some other Vietnam vets, uh, and we had Phil Ward there, too, was uh, uh, quite a commando, if you will. Uh, they gave us the advantage of going to some specialized training. So I sent Mitch Bryan and I to uh, Jungle Operations Training uh, Course in Panama at Fort Sherman and followed by Ricondo School. And that Ricondo School was run by the 8th Special Forces at the time. They decommissioned that group, but I'm told it was the same curriculum from uh, in the Trang School where SOG, SOG went to uh, Ricondo School. Ron Holder was mm -hmm. at Lockbourne as well and uh, Skip Nutting. And these are Vietnam vets. So we had that advantage, and, and we were impressed with those guys. And then we went to Camp Lejeune and spent two and a half weeks working with Force Reconnaissance uh, teams. And uh, so Lockbourne was a, was a good experience. We had uh, temporary duties down in Panama. And uh, so I got into those schools. One, one little vignette about JOTC and, and Ricondo is it was all Army-driven. And Mitch Bryan and I show up. We got two stripes on our arm, <clears throat> E3 in the Air Force. The Army doesn't know. They think we're E4s. And so on our diploma, they don't know what to call us, so they call us uh, Corporal. <laughs> <laughs> And and one of the guys smoked us up. He goes, Corin, you ain't nothing but a FN PFC. And I said, That's right, E three, because we you weren't supposed to be an E three. You had to be an E four. But we we were there. Mitch was actually the number one in the class. I think was number three. He was number one in class, but the army wouldn't give honor grad to an Air Force guy. guy. Can't can't do that, yeah. of course. Nope. But uh, but we. Learned a lot in those jungles in Panama. There's definitely it was it was good curriculum and, and carried M14s, and uh, it was all good from there. And then after that, was, I went. Was, to, go ahead. Were all these schools that you were hitting were 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 you already awarded your beret at that time, or were these? I went through combat. Part yeah. Of a, yeah, I went. I went through combat control school, uh, second class after uh, at Little Rock, as a matter of fact, and. Uh, from there, you came back and and, and, and you got your brain in combat control school, but then you had a, a, a achieve phase three combat ready status, which is some more training items, which we did. So uh, I I forget, I'd have to look at my diplomas on the sequencing of when we went to uh, the Army schools and when I went to combat control school, but uh, they were all in the, in 7071. Okay. And, uh, uh, so it was all good, and, and so Lockbourne was good, and uh, had you know impressive NCOs there, senior NCOs, and they weren't afraid to, you know, kick you in the butt. <laughs> well, yeah, it, 
it's so after talking to you know you, Lampy, Wayne, uh, it's it's amazing to me because we we are so seeming you know bureaucratic and process driven compared to back then, you know, and we're not talking that long ago, you know, we're t- you know talking about seventies, eighties, and, and even into the the nineties and early two thousands, like just, you know, like, like you said, you, you ran into a gentleman wearing a blue beret. Cause at the time we were wearing blue berets. Um, and he's just like, Hey, can you do this? Watch you do the run, watch you do the deep knee bends and hear your orders. That would never happen. Now we'd, we'd need, you know, 120 days for the air force assignment system to work its <laughs> process and formal training. And, and it's just, it seems like such a, a simpler time, if you will, uh, then compared to now, just because there's so many different systems and processes and that kind of stuff. It's just, it's interesting to me because it's, that is the one thing that I have, have noticed that is consistent talking to, to all of the, the kind of legend CCT PJ, uh, intact P brethren, you know? Well, I, I empathize with that. I probably was part of that down the line as I, you know, was coming on in the combat control school. And then I, uh, ended up on the SOCOM staff and going from there because I understand the, how organizations evolve and you, unfortunately, that bureaucracy comes along with it. But it was a simpler day, but I do believe the Air Force really do, did not know what kind of capability combat control had. And we were buried in these god-awful airport squadrons, you know, and, and, and we would get questioned everywhere. You know, why do you need that watch and why, why do you need that? This extra canteen, you know, this type of crap. Uh, so we, we dealt with that. Uh, one little item here. When I went to combat control school, I didn't have a Vietnam rock. I had a pack board. <laughs> and it was just a big Ooh, board that's on a- the back with bungees, right? Bundle all oh. your stuff in a poncho, and that's what you got, young man. Don't complain. Suck it up. Okay. No, uh, no, fr- <laughs> no frame or anything, huh? Well, no, it had it's somewhat a frame, a pack board. But uh, it wasn't, you know, I was hoping for an old Vietnam rock, uh, which we eventually carried as well. But, uh, you know, some old LCE equipment and a pack board. Okay, well, we'll just have to rope the stuff down and hope it doesn't, you know, fall out. So so I don't know how this is going to come out on camera. Um, but <laughs> like, I remember showing up to Indoc and I was given a, a just a bag with some straps you know, nothing, nothing crazy, no frame, no nothing. That's what we were given when we showed up to Indoc to carry all of our equipment in. A Cordura, and, uh, it was Cordura, right though, right? It was Cordura, a nice bag. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, but it's just, it, it's funny, the, the evolution, because now, you know, they're, now they're, they're still rocking Alice Rucks, you know, at, at SWIC and, and assessment and selection and stuff like that. But it's just... It's one of those things, you know, the, the Alice Ruck is a, a proven commodity that has lasted. I mean, I don't even know when it first came out, but it, it's just a phenomenal bag. And it's one of those things that if it's not broken, maybe, maybe don't fix it, you know? (laughs) Okay. So, um, you, you finished all those schools and then, 
kind of what so you're you're at the aerial port squadron you're getting all the extra training you're getting all the all the watches and the extra extra stuff from supply all, all the watches and, yeah. Um, yeah yeah <laughs> and then uh and then what's next for you well then i uh i put my volunteer statement in because i want to you know get into the action and uh i got an opportunity to go to pope and uh on temporary duty and make that first cct mass tactical jump and I saw officers for the first time kind of sort of go, wow, I didn't know they had officers and this many in combat control. And, uh, and one couple guys stand out uh, that I knew not well, but uh, like David Hughes, he was he was a legend himself. He, he did very well. And then uh, I'm standing right next to Algernon Corbett, who's one of my heroes of, of, of combat control. And we're lifelong friends. And then after that, I got orders to go to uh, Detachment 156 Special Operations Wing at Udorn. And I left in uh, March of uh, 72. And uh, I went from Lockbourne to Pope, and Pope to, uh, spent seven months at Pope, and then I went to Udorn. And I went through Jungle Survival on the way over at, in the PI. And that was a nice experience. I enjoyed that. And uh, so I show up at Udorn, and uh, it's a whole new ballgame. Wow. And they're teaching close air support and Fort Air Guides and indigenous people. And I was I was okay. I mean that was that was what I wanted to do. And I I did go and learn about the conflict in Laos and who's kind of running things. So I went on my own and picked up some of the books there and I realized how politic politically it was it was messed up. And the fact that I realized at an early age, and I were talking, I was over there when I was 20. I turned 21 on an AC-119K combat mission over northern Laos. And, oh, my God. Oh, I know. <laughs> and, I'm, I, and, and because we trained the Ford Air Guides on the ground, they said, well, we need more productivity out of that. Maybe you can help out. And we were, uh, so I ended up with about 334, 344 combat hours uh, flying AC-119, uh, they were they were the K models out of Nakhon uh, Phanon, NKP, and uh, actually that night I turned 21. Uh, one of our NCOs, uh, Tech Sergeant Frank Palmer, got shot up, and they had to uh, return to Udorn, and he ended up with a big man, survived, but the head of a 37 millimeter AAA uh, round was lodged in his chest and they pulled it out. He did not die. It was incredible. It came right through the wheel well of the AC-119. And it's a little thing, you know, Frank, how you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Down for maintenance a little bit. And I was going, <laughs> wow. And, uh, but he, he, he was hurt bad and he returned to the States. So when I, I got over there in, in seven, March of 72, I turned 21 in May of 70. 72, and uh, ended up going up and back up into northern Laos. And, and, and Mike Lampy at the time was on 404 out of Longchen. We'd go up to Longchen and trade our, our Ford Air Guides. And then we were then further expanded into the F-111 Beacon program later on in uh, late September of, of uh, 1972. And we actually taught the Hmong at Longchen. We established an air ops center called Red Dog Control. Uh, 
It's in Gene Adcock's book. Kath Seymour contributed to that. And we, we used Weems plotters, just no computers, no GPS. And we put out PPN uh, 18s at the time. And we would encircle the plane of jars in northern Laos, and we'd have offset beacon bombing accuracy with F-111s. And they reintroduced the F-111s uh, in 72. And uh, and they would just talk to us. So they, uh, they'd come in straight level, 10,000 foot. We'd give them distance, direction, bearing, and uh, they'd go into offset, and they'd, they'd bomb. And they could only release, you know, a string of 12 Mark 82s uh, at one time. They carried 24, and then they had four 2,000-pounders, four Mark 84s. So I got to meet General Vang Pao. I got to meet the CIA, who was running Operation Momentum and the whole operation in northern Laos. And we moved around northern Laos, primarily on Air America helicopters, and it was exciting. And we were in kind of half-assed looking. We had jeans, jungle boots, and a camouflage shirt with a wild <laughs> volunteer patch on Carrying, carrying a 38 and, a, and a, at the time was called a car 15, you know, that's, <laughs> that's nuts. Okay. Like, but these are all the, like, and this is, is going to sound really, really fanboy, but these are the types of stories that make people want to join. And like made me want to go like, I want to be out there doing that kind of thing, whether it's the, the kind of clandestine operations or whether it's full on military operations, but being able to just kind of, because you, you guys have epitomized thinking outside the box, if you will, problem solving, right? Which is what, which is what we preach and we recruit to. But I mean, you guys didn't have the technology to, that we do now and you guys and and I didn't I didn't realize that you guys were doing beacon bombing at that point, um, at least ground ground based. Yeah, we were we were we were, and we also supported the B fifty two ops on our arc like missions in Laos. We put out SST one eighty one X band beacons. Mm -hmm. But interesting about that is that we were tasked to do that by Seventh Thirteenth Air Force, which was a command entity at Udorn. But the buffs would not talk to us. SAC would not allow that. You know, SAC talked to their SAC operations center. We can't talk to those guys on the ground putting the beacons out. <laughs> but we put those out as well. And at times we'd have to secure the sites and move the beacons around. And we're talking old BB-451 wet cell batteries, 16-pound wet cells that powered these things. We 15 had pounds? 16 for a pounds. 16 pounds. 16 so a PR, pounds for a battery. Yeah, a, a UHF. PRC-41 on top of a BB-451 probably weighed about 30 pounds, maybe 35. It was heavy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and ounces make pounds. <laughs> yes. And, and so we put those out, and we moved them around. And uh, we did some operations in Cambo Cambodia in 73. We'll, we'll, we'll go over that in a little bit. But then when we came back, and Mike... Uh, was able to elaborate further. We had a Ford Air Guide program at Udorn, and we trained southwest of Udorn at the Nambu Lampul Range, which is a large valley. We were on top of a cliff. You know, I sent you a picture of that, and 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 Clyde Howard then came over on the team. And one one other aspect of the team, little known aspect, 
is that we were 6 to 11 enlisted. We had no combat control officer. I say that with a smile because, you know, (laughs) we didn't need one. (laughs) You know, of course, I became an officer later. (laughs) And who did they appoint as the OIC of this renegade, renegade band of combat controllers living in the alert area at Udorn because it was air conditioned, you see? All the other guys in Debt 156 Sal, the maintenance guys, they were in the hooches on the other side of the base, and they were were not air conditioned. So we like Ooh, we ate a little, we ate little the, warm. It was so we ate in the alert area chow hall. We got to know a lot of F four pilots, and uh, and Hugh Smith, uh, flight surgeon of the year back in seventy two or seventy three, and he was a great guy. Uh, and his bo- boss was uh, Doc Lockridge, who was. Uh, wore a PJ beret, and so he was uh, one of the first PJ officers I met at the time, and Doc Lockridge was very cool, tough guy, came over, did some jumps with us, and because uh, the 56 wing was actually at NKP, we were debt one at Udorn, but the large detachment, 450 people. So we did support, like Mike said, we had uh, Ford student pilot training at Namfong, so we got a lot of good air traffic control. Had a lot of uh, interesting episodes there. We evacuated Van Pyle out of Laos back in 74. We brought the Marines in from Da Nang, and then the Marines had the base, and then we left. We evacuated the Marines out. We went back to Namphong. When the Marines were there, we moved our T-28 training to Konkan, and, uh, which is south and west of uh, uh, Namphong. So... That and our survival training for our Laotian aviators and then our, our training at the Thai border police camp, all of that contributed to, to quite a special ops mix, if you will. And we didn't have much charter. You know, we had some of the old Air Force Reg 3-5 Ford Air Guide stuff. Uh, in Jan Churchill's book on, on Cleared Hot, there's, there's an example of it in the back. And that's from the old Butterfly Fact days in, in, in mid to late uh, 60s in Laos. So we picked that up, and this was uh, what we inherited from Rick Crutchfield, who left in 71, and and then Mike Lampy and I ended up rewriting that whole Ford Air Guide curriculum uh, as that one then became NACTI TLD, Training Logistics Detachment. It was just a, a name change. We were actually in the 1131st Special Activities Squadron, which is – you know, we, these are all cover names for, for this, but, you know, we didn't care anything about that. We didn't. They were just names on a paper, you know. Yeah, yeah, we had a, just words. <laughs> we had a commander of the attachment, and the, and the T-28 commanders were Air Force Special Air Warfare guys. They were cool, and they allowed us to do our job, and they supported us, too. They had guts, okay? And and we put them in a, a trick every once in a while, and... uh <laughs> <laughs> and they supported us. So it was it was that experience from, and I was there straight from March of 72 to end of May 1975, 39 months straight. And it was an incredible, impressionable experience for me. And even though yeah, we, you, we lost the war, but, you know. Yeah, I'd say you did a lot of, lot of growing and a lot of, uh, a lot of growing there. <laughs> Jeez. We did, and and we realized, and and Mike and I would would uh, talk in the latter days, and we had other people come in, 
and we talk about the capability of combat control, we knew it could be more than what it is. We knew that the, the Air Force organization for us was not good. And there's a lot of people that felt that way. And we felt that way. Then, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you because I'm, I'm tying where kind of we're at now to where you are then. What was it that helped you kind of recognize that, that, hey, CCT, uh, and, and the bigger picture now, you know, special tactics, what helped you recognize like, hey, we, we can be so much more and maybe the Air Force at that time isn't the right, um, parent to have? Well, uh, I admired actually the, the pararescue, uh, organization, even though they were tied to an airframe, we got to know a lot of PJs and NKP that were actually doing a lot of combat rescues. Because we, when we fly AC-119s at, at, at NKP, we'd sit, sometimes stay in the PJ hooches and play cards with those guys. That was a boot. Uh, amongst <laughs> other activities, compartment and activities. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And, things that and, we can't talk about now. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and that was a great experience because we heard their stories and we were and these guys had a chest of metals you know because they did some hard stuff they did wonderful stuff and uh and we uh in fact uh, this evening the combat control foundation is going to recognize Brigadier general stovall who picked up an f4 back seater named roger locker and when they brought him back to udor and we were there we were in that celebration and we were going wow this is impressive so we knew all of us there on the team and we're talking john wood clyde howard pepper adams rex walman or, or, or rex corbin not rex walman um uh, mike lampy mike brown dick brawley came over uh granny taylor came over we knew we could do a lot more uh organizationally we were hoping for that so uh, but everything closed down uh, in May of 75 uh, because our Laotian emphasis ended in March of 73. In fact, I put the beacons out with one other. I think Stu Pressey was with me on the last arc lights in Laos in March of 73. We were up there putting the beacons out on the mountains. And Jeez. that's when President Nixon was turning on and off the, the bombing uh, because they may have, and it was right before the POWs got released. And so we went up there one more time, got to put it back out, put them out, go back to Longchen, run the strike, get back in the Air America helicopter, pick the beacons up, come back to Udorin. So that was uh, the last bombing raise in Laos. And then we turned to oh, Khmer, a, a Cambodian emphasis with, uh, at the time, Khmer's, they were Cambodians, and they were fighting the, 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 bad, the bad guys, the Khmer Rouge, who were ruthless communists. And so we were, we were supporting the C-123 airdrop program. And so when Mike mentioned about that we were trained, I went down to Sadahip and got trained by the Army uh, riggers on how to rig uh, CDS bundles and heavy equipment bundles. That was a hoot. <laughs> Yeah, it's a learning experience for sure. It was. And then <laughs> we'd airdrop them. Error. Yeah, we'd airdrop them. We'd do high-velocity CDS at Nafong. I almost had to fight the locals from 
they would come in and try to steal every parts of the of the the dunnage, the, the fifty five gallon drums. We'd have ring slot parachutes. Uh, every once in a while, we'd say, "I wonder if this ring slot will, you know, how many lines can we cut before it'll actually fail?" So we <laughs> we'd cut a couple lines and we get a little directional capability of a of a ring slot high velocity CDS. This, you know, we did stuff like that, and just to uh, try and guide it to where you needed to go, huh? Not really. We were just messing around. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to give you too much yeah. credit there. No, we 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 did not have that cognitive ability at that time. <laughs> but uh, but we did recover what we could, and 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 also the the accuracy was on a C one twenty three with Camirs flying it. And if you're on a C one twenty three, you only got pilot co-pilot, and the FE has to stand up from the floor and look into the cockpit. And that's where the instructor pilot would be. And to his right on the floor was an opening. And there's two wires looking straight down. That's all it is. A manual crosshair. And that's how they would airdrop uh, on the exit point with these things. <laughs> and then at times after the airdrop, we'd, we'd, uh, we'd jump the 123. So we'd take advantage. We'd bring our rigs. You know, we do the airdrop. We come back around. We hop on. Get a free fall. Was, it, was he okay? I was going to say it must be free fall because oh, I don't know that fall? I want to. I, I don't know that I want a static line out of out of that kind of platform, and at the same time, uh, no. off of somebody who's who's you know eyeing it <laughs> off of a, <laughs> a wire crosshair. Yeah, no, it was it was it was free fall. But okay. that's the other thing we we got the ability to we we jumped C forty sevens. A couple friends came over on a MTT military tra mobile training team training uh, Khmer's and Laotians on uh, flying Goonie birds. <clears throat> a friend of mine, Will Elledge, did that. Uh, uh, a, a major Gosnell ran that program, and he was great to us. So, and and then we got the flu back seat with the Raven Fax in O ones, and we because they were training the O one. They call them Chapacau, and that was their call sign of the O one spotters for the Laotian Air Force. So we got to fly in the back seats O ones as they were doing vectoring as you're doing some of the uh, dry uh, Ford air guide runs, you know, and uh, both from the ground and from the air. So we'd fly two ship O-1s at times. So then we accumulated more hours flying that way too. So it was pretty intense and uh, it, was, it was a good team. So you guys were essentially airborne Ford air controllers or what would be JTACs now? Well, I, I I wouldn't call it because we weren't fully qualified on that. We were we were there with the Raven Facts, who were the absolute pros, you know, from the Seat Canyon program. But we were tra doing ground based forward air guide training, close air sport training. It was known as FAG training, close forward air guide training. But it was all close air sport, so we knew it good. We 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 knew all the air aspects, um, and uh, we were very air traffic control proficient. At Concan and and Amphong. and uh, and we had a couple uh, times where we had a, a T twenty eight go in. One high profile one was when Brian Schul he ended up telling his story uh, because he he went in in a uh, Cambodian trained bird with a Cambodian in the back seat, and that was sensitive at the time. A third party national, and yeah. he crashed 
1,100 meters off the, uh, the southern runway of Namphong. And so we recovered him. I stayed in the tower and coordinated that we had H-43 come out of Udord. And then we had our fire department and two combat controllers. It was Stu Pressey, and I forget who else it was. It might have been Mike Brown. Went down and actually got him and his student. Who, they did not die. They were banged up. And we got him over to the parking ramp and got him out. And then uh, there's some stories about that that end up in Airman Magazine talking about a special forces team just happened to be walking through the jungle and saw the wreck. But well, that's bogus. I mean, I don't know who writes that crap, but it wasn't. <laughs> the guy the guy was in a pattern. His engine seized, lost his oil, and he froze and he dead-sticked it because the Cambodian T-28s did not have Yankee seats. They had no ejection seat capability, whereas the Laotian T-28s did have Yankee seats with a with basically zero-zero capability. So, and then Brian Schul went on to uh, a year of recovery, got back in aviation, got back into safety, and then up back, ended up flying SR-71s. And, you know, a good story. Jeez. So, you know, we were part of that. And they had an accident investigation and we, you know, testified what happened and everything was fine. <laughs> so we, had, we had some great experiences there. No kidding. Okay. So moving on um, past Vietnam, mm-hmm. right? So we're closing it down. Um, and, and again, I... I'm bringing up Wayne just because, like, I talked to him two days ago about this. Um, it, we, we were kind of joking. I was like, because, you know, I was like, hey, you know, we're having, you know, legends on. And everybody knows all of your names, you know, all, all the young guys. Because, you know, we, we believe in heritage. We believe in in knowing your past. One, you learn from your past. But at the same time, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants, right? So everybody knows your names. Um but he, he, he finds it funny. He's like, okay, yeah, we get all these accolades. He goes, but you realize that, you know, there, there were 15 years between missions, you know, um, at least that he was on. He was, he was kind of being hyperbolic in terms of 15 years, but there was a period of time. So you leave Vietnam. When was your next kind of uh, operational set? Was it Eagle Claw or? No. Um, actually, remember, we were in northern Thailand and we operated in Laos, Cambodia, and, and Vietnam. I was in Vietnam. Uh, year after year after GIs left. That's another story. But we did a continuous overseas uh, assignment to uh, the Philippines. That's and right. So, so we were there uh, when the evacuation of Saigon occurred. When we when we when Phnom Penh, Cambodia fell, some members of our team went down to southern Thailand, Mike and, and Mitch Bryan, and recovered refugees there and then we recovered some in Nanfong. But when we went to the Philippines, uh, then they uh, that was the team that did the Vietnam evacuation. And we got there after that. And then our emphasis when we were on the Philippines team and and, and all Vietnam experienced guys uh, was Korea. So I got to yeah. go and do a three week TDY surveying a whole, uh, uh, with Dave Thompson, I might add, uh, my initial recruiter, uh, all these LZs in, in Korea to include that island off the, uh, it was southwest of uh, the DMZ called Payongdo, where we landed a C-123 on the beach at low tide, surveyed it. That place got shelled every once in a while, and then we 
And we went to other places. <laughs> Just and, got shelled uh, occasionally. <laughs> that's what they told us. <laughs> and so we went in with two combat controllers and a uh, lieutenant colonel. Uh, I call him a minder. He was he was a, uh, a, a Korean Air Force guy. And then we had a American airlifter with us, sometimes a captain, most of the time a lieutenant colonel because the Koreans were rank conscious. And so we went to many places in Korea. And so, and, and so we were off the beaten track too. We were not just at Osan uh, or elsewhere. We went to all these other places. And of course, the Korean legacy I read up on was, you know, back in the Korean war was incredible. And it still was. And, and, and uh, we were part of that. We'd exercise up there. Uh, we did a, uh, the highest altitude at that time, free fall jump, four-man team, myself, Jim Donaldson, Mitch Bryan, and Dick West. And uh, we missed the drop zone, but we, they, thought, they, they thought we went down and launched a SAR for us. It was in a river uh, uh, south, uh, in, the, in the middle of Korea, near the DMZ. And so Jim spoke uh, Japanese, and the Japanese occupied Korea back in the thir late 30s. So we were able to fly down a bus, haul all our stuff, get on the bus, and we drive with the Koreans north about 30 clicks until we get to the correct place where we got to bring in this massive airdrop. And we got there in the nick of time and ran, and ran the airdrop. And let me, let me ask you, when you when you say it was the highest freefall jump at the time, what, what yeah. do you remember what you jumped out at? Uh, we jumped to C-130 from 23,500. Yeah. And that's uh that's high. <laughs> and we had we had old four pin halo rigs with sleeved round shoots. Oh no wonder you missed the drop zone. <laughs> well, Jim was our he was most experienced. He was a master sergeant at the time and he was jump master and when the shepherd goes out, the sheep have to follow. That yeah, I agree. And and we went out and there was two islands in that river, they looked very similar. And uh <clears throat> And I, th I thought it was a navigator release. Uh, I think Jim aided it visually, but we, we landed on the wrong island in the middle of the river, river. And so we had to maneuver up to the correct island to bring, these are large sandbars in the middle of those rivers. And, uh, but we got there in time and, and we brought in this uh, airdrop of uh, probably a battalion minus of army troops and everybody was happy. You know, JK, I don't even know what to say to that because that's just wild to me to to even think about and, and hear. <laughs> Continue, please. Well, it was it was wild. There's no question. You know, we had to bring all gear back, so we had to hump our kit bags with our rigs. We couldn't bury them in the ground. You know, we had to bring them along, along with yeah. all of our other equipment. So, but that was a highlight. Uh, working TDY from the Philippines into Korea. And Wayne uh, was on those, Wayne O'Red and Mitch Bryan and Mike Lampy. And uh, so we had a good team at Clark when, when we got there and they were all Clark uh, combat experience vets. And I knew some of them. And Jim Howell was again, our NCIC there. And we did have some OICs there, uh, uh, Ev Robbins, Robbie Robbins, he, he was a former tech sergeant, but he was a, a captain, good guy. And uh, we had one other major there, I don't recall his name, 
And I thought that, um, and, and Wayne was our training NCO and, and he did some innovative training for us. You know, we did some scenarios. We actually did some horseback training on ORIs. And, you know, we had the old naysayers say, you're never going to go anywhere on a horseback. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of foreshadow there. <laughs> it was. It was. And we, we did that on Clark at, uh, near the Mabalakot Gate and, uh, and got around uh, northern Luzon. And uh, it was it was, the Clark team was a good team. And so I stayed there until September of 76. What, we went to, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry, we had some internet lag there. Um, was it is it common or was it common then for uh, enlisted to then go officer? Because I mean, you did it. You you just mentioned two other folks did it. Um, I mean, because you 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 said it earlier, like we didn't really need at the time. We didn't really need officers other than working with um, other countries that are rank oriented you know and, and there are they and there's still a lot of them are still that way um to include some u.s organizations uh are just hey listen if you're if you're not enlisted to a certain rank or you're not an officer at a certain rank like i don't want to talk to you even if you're not the tactical expert i just like, i want nothing to do with you so we have to have some of that kind of top coverage um but was that common for for enlisted to go officers back then um uh, actually it didn't dawn on me until about 78 when I got into an educational program with Southern Illinois University that I realized there could be a pathway for me to get my four-year degree and to apply for OTS. Uh, I did not know. I, I think inherently that when we saw in the mid-70s, mid when we saw non-combat control officers trying to explain the combat control role, uh, they could never do that. So uh, we believe, I believe that we should have officers to be able to do that. And if they're going to be able to do that, they got to be just like us in some, some respects. So, uh, so we had two officers on the team at the time and, and, and they took advice, you know, and actually Roger Willermuth was one of our young officers at, in the Philippines as well. And he, and he was a stud out of the Air Force Academy. And uh, he was very athletic, and uh, he was a skydiver, so we skydived on the side at, at Clark as well. And uh, so it was a good experience. So I, I did not wake up uh, to realize that I need to get an education and, and pursue things until I was back in the States and ended up getting married in, in 77, I think, in, in California. And I realized, you know, I got some miles to feed and, <laughs> I'm going to look around and, and try something else. And my brother was an officer of the Army at the time, the one who went through ROTC. And so I never thought there was a chance for me, a dumb kid out of Pittsburgh that could do it. But we did pursue uh, the education office, gave us some ideas, taking college-level interest exams, you know, the CLEP tests. And then we put together degrees. Uh, and this is all correspondence, no Internet, Right. Right, yeah. <laughs> mail, mailing it to the institution saying, here it is. Will you accept these credentials? And as facilitated by the, the base education office. So that helped. And then I, I did get into a every other weekend format at Charleston. And I was able to uh, uh, get a degree and 
four to six months prior to getting your degree, if you had a high GPA, you could apply for OTS. So that's how I did it at Charleston. Okay. And that was, that was tough because Charleston, uh, Norton and Charleston, Norton was the beginning of brand X actually in 77. And then we went all to Charleston in 78 and that was intensive. So we'd go on missions, TDY, support Blue Light and Delta, which were vying for the National Counterterrorism Force. And we we do all those we would do all those missions because we had the special tactics team uh, prototype Brand X at Charleston. And so we were on the road all the time. Then I come back, I go to two straight days, Saturday and Sunday, sitting in a class at the base <sighs> education office. All while trying to stand up Brand X. But made it happen. And oh. uh, and I had a great leader at that time. His name was John Carney, the father of special tactics. Because John yep. had guts. And we would go to hell and back for him. That's all. I love story. hearing that. He was, I love hearing he was, that. I, I saw that this officer not only had panache and professionalism, he was able to communicate with us and lead by example. And he did. Floored us. He was incredible. And that's why we gravitated to him. And that's why we were so effective in a cohesive Brand X team because of our leader. There's absolutely no question. You know, we had great influencers. You know, Jim Howell was involved in the early days. Clyde Howard was there uh, uh, helping out in the early Brand X days. Um, and, and early Brand X had a lot of people on it. You know, we had 26 to 30. I got a picture on the wall with, uh, you know, Mike Steinbeck's in it. Jim Keen yeah. was one of Jim Keen was one of our officers. Jim was former Special Forces. Uh, but we we whittled it down to where we had this entity uh, get together at Charleston, and then we had to work with the Charleston team because there was a there was a little friction at times. And uh, and we we needed uh, augmentation at times, but uh, Carney was just an incredible leader during the heyday of Brand X. And that's what made it so successful. It's amazing to me how one person can kind of be a, a center of gravity for folks and just pull people in and, and go in the right direction. And it's it's a, a level of inherent leadership because I, I, I promise you it wasn't taught like he didn't learn that in whatever college he went to. He learned it through either being a natural leader, through experiences and through, you know, trial and error. And be and surrounding himself with other people and and gleaning the good from people and then also observing the bad from his own leaders and, and show and seeing what not to do, you know. Well, your term center of gravity is is spot on, uh, and we apply that to you know examining the enemy structure. Uh, <laughs> but he was a leader, and all leaders have have warts. He had warts. We all had warts. There's no question. Yeah. You know, but he had guts, and I saw that firsthand because when we did go out and support Blue Light and Delta, we ended up with the JTF that would come out, and this basically with the uh, the JC uh, the Joint Communication Support Element, and basically all Redcom Readiness Command guys that actually had the plan. I won't tell you the number of it because I don't know; it may still be classified. 
but it was a, a four-digit plan for counterterrorism because uh, when when I think it was General Rogers back in '76 said, "Well, the Israelis did this at Entebbe. Do we have that capability?" And nobody, you know, spoke up. And that's when Military Airlift Command put together what we call Project Recognition, brought us up there, and said, "You know, we want you to volunteer for a special secret mission, but can't tell you what it is." Everybody, everybody want to be there and do it? Everybody, yes, I want to be there. You know, that speaks well for everybody there. And that's that's how that started. They brought us all up to Scott Air Force Base. And and it was exciting. And it was exciting. And I got John Carney, Jim Howell, Jim Keene, some older NCOs uh, from, from Herbert. Clyde was there. Uh, Clyde Howard. Uh, <laughs> I was impressed, and and we were Mac guys, military airlift command guys, and we were running into the old TAC guys at Herbert, Buddy Bowden and company, and were they part of that whole Mac initiative? No, but but they were getting involved in it too. So every time we had these exercises go off, they show we show we'd have to work it out, and yeah, I can tell you, you there was the had, there was some. Uh, there's some hard times, uh, but we all worked it out. But there were some hard times, and there's probably some fists that were fl- flying. As I was well. going to say, I, th- I got a feeling that the hard <laughs> times involve some uh, some scuffles because that's like that's who we are. Like we we fight, like literally fight, and then yeah. we're fine afterwards. It's it's a weird thing. It is. Coach Coach has a lot of it, and there's no room for error book. And uh, and through Coach, I got to meet Ben Schemmer, who is co-author, who was very influential on the establishment of U.S. CELCOM. Great guy, old ranger, guy with 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 guts. And uh, so I, I was I was part of an emerging situation. I realized that, and we relished it. And we had quite a team. You know, yeah. Hol- Ron Holder, Mitch Bryan. Yeah, all uh, the names that you mentioned, J.K., are Mike all people that are like, <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> yes. And but we we busted our butt. There's no question. We sucked it up and busted on our family suffered. You know, prolonged TDY. <clears throat> yeah. And uh, but we were there for the mish. And so uh, I'll just continue to segue into, if you like, into now the Iranian thing. Yeah, please. OK, because. On the, we were on the validation of Delta down at Fort Stewart. We were on that mission. And all of a sudden, it, you know, they completed, they, they uh, were certified, and then the embassy went down on uh, the 4th of November, 1979. Wow. We busted butt back to Charleston. And we knew that this was probably the first mission. And so we went through those five months of preparation that culminated in the failed Desert One mission should not have failed, in my view. And we can go into particulars on that. But as Colonel Guidry, who is the eighth SOS um, director of operations, the combat talent director of, uh, of operations, uh, who I got to know Colonel Guidry well, we had one month to do the mission five times rather than having five months to do the mission once. We had to be ready because we didn't know if it was going to go down. Had no idea. And then as it started 
to prolong itself and we got into Christmas and the Christmas break, you know, this is never going to happen. It is going to happen. And there's some good books on it. I just recently finished um, Carol Keith Nightingale's book called Phoenix Rising, probably one of the best uh, recollections uh, on it. In fact, I have it right here because it's Phoenix Rising. Yeah, right there. Phoenix Rising oh, yeah. by Colonel Keith Nightingale. And I just I, saw that on Amazon uh, being advertised. Yeah, it is. It's been out a year, a little over a year and a half. Uh, I had the, as a technical sergeant at the time, Mitch and Mike were master sergeants. So I was a technical sergeant. Uh, I had the opportunity to go up with uh, Colonel Carney, Major Carney at the time, and plan at a tactical level in the in the Special Operations Division. It, 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 they call it the SOD. And we were all in civilian clothes, cheap Kmart suits, and uh, I had access to everything. I had temporary TSSEIs, access to everything. And, of course, I gravitated to the NCOs that were running the show, the admin NCOs, you know, hey, tell me what's going on here. And I saw the plan. We contributed to the plan. And not only our plan, but the air plan. And I knew some aspects of the Delta plan and the um, initial entry plan. And I was enthralled with that because it was such a responsibility. And it was enriching for me personally. But I realized that this, it was the big leagues and we, we cannot fail. We must do our piece. And, and we did. Yeah. <clears throat> and we did. It's it's wild to think about how um, how much that operation and and we'll just there were some successes and failures obviously I, I don't think that can be argued but how that then shaped where we are today just with the you know creation of SOCOM and the Goldwater Nichols Act and and man what so much of the operations that we've done in the last, and, and this is public math, I, I, I get it, you know, but in the last 40 years, how much we have done and, and been able to accomplish and organize, train, and equip because of that operation. There's no question. Uh, we broke new ground. I failed because you didn't have enough H50, RH-53s, and it should not have failed because one of the RH-53s turned back and made a poor decision to turn back to the Nimitz. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and the Marines owned that all the way. There's no question. That was a poor decision. They claim they went back to re refuel and rearm and come back. That's bogus. They got disoriented. They didn't follow their instructions to press on, even though we had the Haboob and the suspended dust. If they would have followed their instructions and gone to where they're supposed to go, we would have had six functioning helicopters because the one that came in with the backup flight control system would have been the seventh one. So uh, that, that's Wade Ishimoto from Delta will tell you that. And we've reviewed that mission a couple of times. I went back this past year uh, with the Delta uh, commemoration of that at the Airborne and Special Ops Museum, uh, mm -hmm. held two days late because of COVID. But that's that's all there's to it. But we broke new ground there, 
And then immediately when we came back and we failed, we went immediately into Honey Badger, which was the second attempt. And we did a full dress rehearsal at Reese Air Force Base, dual runway. And it was a, a substantial operation with substantial air cover. And uh, we were part of that. And uh, at that time, it was a mass sergeant. And then once they put that on the shelf, uh, then I went to officer's training school in September of 1980. <laughs> so, so real quick, JK, before, and, and this is going to be weird because I'm, I'm breaking the third wall or whatever. Are you, are you willing to come back on? Uh, and, and have a whole nother conversation because we have covered so much and we're already at an hour. Um, but I don't want to, I don't want to just stop and just lose everything else that you've done, but I want to make sure you're willing to come back on. I, I am. And I see where that, okay. and this was a good example. And I probably talked too much and I apologize. No, no, you, uh, no, you didn't, okay. which is why we've had, we've had Mike Lampy on twice. Now I'm waiting on a third. We've had Wayne Norada. Like I fully anticipate two hours, but again, it takes a while to get people to like warm up to coming on. But I mean, that what we've covered already is incredible. And, and we're just, you know, at, you know, just cresting into the eighties. Like, so I, like, I, I want to have another conversation with you because it's been fantastic. Okay. I just want to make sure you're willing to come back on. <laughs> I am. I am one clarification okay. here. This, this is a college up in Crescent, Pennsylvania that we, myself and um, Mike Lampy, L Corbett and Charlie McCarthy presented a forum about four years ago. Aloysius is my middle name, by the way. And, and, uh, my my niece was the regional director at that college, so that's and she knew I played baseball in high school, so that's that's why I got that on. So, well, I did wonder what Mac a little was because I was yeah. sit, I was sitting here like, okay, well, that can't be Mo Mobility Air Command. No, so. that's 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 the conference they're in. They're they're the Mounties because it's a mountainous area. Okay, that's, so uh, <laughs> it's it's a it's a mountain something conference up there in the middle of Pennsylvania with with very small Division two and Division three schools. But uh, I just wanted to show that. No, I'll be happy That's to awesome. do that. This was this was good, and uh, and and you're right. We 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 go along and we dive into a specific vignette in detail, and that's good. But I I do want to say I think I first of all thank you for preserving the legacy. We are not legends. We are just guys trying to move the baton forward, just like you guys are, and just like this incredible force that after I retired in 96, just evolved into the premier special operations force in the United States military with a magnificent record with better training, better funding, better abilities. And this speaks to the individuals in that Yeah, with a good representation. So I make no mistake, you guys are the premiers force in the world and i applaud you for that there's bureaucracy there but the record in afghanistan and iraq is incredible well i i definitely appreciate it and, and i know you know aaron and trend and all the other folks within special tactics definitely appreciate it um i i get it because i would not want to be called a legend either so um but for all the viewers out there or listeners just if you guys are noticed, you know, JK, you're the you're essentially the third or fourth legend we've had on now. 
if you're not seeing a a trend of the same exact names going through and being mentioned, I'm just I'm just pointing that out. The same names are mentioned over and over again. So um, we definitely appreciate it. So yeah, we'll we'll get you scheduled to come back on because um, you've got a lot more to tell and we haven't even really gone into detail so uh for everybody out there appreciate you joining us please like and subscribe and um and and stand by for the next uh iteration we appreciate it we are out here thank you bye-bye jake